I'm Minhaj China, and you're listening to Voices of the City, a project of Broad Street Radio. I don't think colored people were aware of their involvement in this culture. I don't think they knew how instrumental they were, especially through groups like Prophets of the City and BVK and Black Noise. I don't think they knew that this is in our DNA, this is in our, our, our culture, this is in our blood. You know, we make hip-hop, we like hip-hop. Because when I was growing up, when I rapped for people, I'd either get laughed at, I'd either get bullied, or I'd get told the shit is never going to happen. Because this is what you need. So you need to learn to play something. You are listening to Voices of the City, hosted by Minhaj Gina and produced by Volume. The six-part series will explore race, history and resistance through hip-hop culture in Cape Town from the late 1980s until today. For this episode, we are in Weinberg with Youngster CPT. Around two decades after the collapse of political apartheid in South Africa, it was clear that its foundation, built of slavery, violence and subjugation, remained intact. There was no place that revealed this foundation like Cape Town. It's a city constructed to separate and control. On its margins, hidden from its cosmetic beauty, are expanding ghettos. These sprawling towns are designed for control and segregation and constructed to breed and sustain violence. Parts of the city are reminiscent of war zones, controlled by gangs and sustained by the political economy of drugs. But its people, its culture, its art, and its memory continue to inspire hope. In Witteboma Weinberg, a young storyteller by the name of Riyad Roberts was getting agitated. He began to dig into his past. He found stories of struggle, of hope, and of resistance. Riyad went on a mission to tell the world those stories. His work ethic became unmatched. He used ingenious rhymes to speak truth to the masses, forcing us to put everything we thought we knew about the people he represented on trial. Riyadh, in a very real way, became a voice of the city. The country had no choice but to hear what he had to say, and he went by the name Youngster CPT. Welcome to Voices of the City, my brother. Salute. It was a great intro. I was looking around for Youngster CPT and I'm like, ah, damn, where's this man? <laughs> Who, who's this man that you speak of? He's a myth. Before we start the discussion, tell us where we're sitting right now. Currently, we are located in Lansdowne, Wetton Road. This is a very significant place for us in many ways. I've seen this venue, this location itself, go through about four to five different facelifts. And as you can see, we're like in the fifth phase of a facelift here. So initially, um, it was a nightclub a venue uh, that we frequented. There was always some sort of link that I had here. So I have photographs in this place even as early as 2010. You know, and the crazy thing is even in those photos I'm wearing a white jean sweater in 2010. So the fact that we, you know, managed to kind of, I won't say stay here, but we always come back. You know, there's like always this return and there's always this um, the sense of of homecoming whenever we hear. It used to be called um, Club 112 when I'm um, wearing the white jean t-shirt in 2010. 
Then it became bang ball, where I performed it, because this was the time when you had to go to clubs looking formal, with uh, collar sweaters and parapuntas, which is your block shoes, your square toes. You had to come to the club dressed like that. And because I was performing here, I had to explain to the, the owner at the time, like, yo, you must understand, my fan base don't wear ties <laughs> and they don't wear shirts, bro. so you're going to have to give some leniency when I come perform here. Um, and because of that, they started an event called Sneaks and Peaks, which was the tackies and the caps. And because of me and the YGN, things started to change and it became like a hip-hop and R&B friendly club. You can say that so down to the, the music, the clothes, the events we used to have here, the artists we would book here became like artists that were very much involved in that space. There was a few um, open mic events we had here as well. This is the first place I met Rolene who's now um, signed with Nancy C. You know, she kind of did some of her early shows here as well, when it was Bang Bar. After Bang Bar, it became The Loft. During the time it was The Loft, we then took control during the day. The Muffin Man came to open the barbershop here, which you now see on the block in Weinberg by us at the headquarters. But first, the barbershop was in here. And then, um, you know, we thought, oh, well, we're cutting here during the day. Why not just set up a little rail and sell clothes also? So then we started selling the YGN merch here as well. And on Saturdays, we'd have like little gathering days where people could come through and we'd make food and play music and it's haircuts and it's clothing to sell. So like almost like a lifestyle event that was happening on like a bi-weekly basis. But uh, yeah, so a lot of um, the early um, merch that we made got sold here in this place. And thereafter, it closed down and it was, you know, dormant for a while. It opened into another nightclub. We weren't a part of that. That club didn't last long, maybe like a year or two, and it was closed again. And when the place went on the market, the owners was like, you know, I think the only people that would really do justice to this venue was those guys who was here in the time when it was Bang Bar and when it was The Loft and when it was Wantel. Because they remember us always, you know, you, you know, whether we were performing or whether we were selling burros, <laughs> we were always doing something constructive inside. And uh, yeah, this year, 2022, we were approached by the, the landlords and it was like, we want to we wanna give this place to you guys to do something. Because they obviously seen what's happening with the block in Weinberg, you know. So during the pandemic also, things were a bit tricky for business owners, landlords, I can imagine, you know, people coming short and late on the rent, certain places needing to be sold or closed down, you know, venues need to be reconfigured, uh, staff must be let go. So all these different shifts happen in the business world. And uh, I suppose they had the idea to include us once again in the, the resurgence of 139 Whitten Road. So, like I said, I've seen this place go through about four or five uh, facelifts. And now we are here again. One day this will be our recording studio. You will come here again to look totally different. This will be a recording studio. Inside we're doing the, the photo studio uh, to shoot content and so forth. Uh, you know, once again, another... A result of lockdown you know one has to think smart also during that time we had to we had to really think on our toes because caught us off guard you know but uh, the significance of this place like i say i mean i can go as far back as when i started at age 18 and even right now as i am at age 30 it's somewhere that i know is gonna it's always gonna be with us we're not we're not actually gonna be able to escape this place it's gonna be ours and so is the block and there's certain, I can say, landmarks. I look at it as like um, uh, pinpoints. If I was to send somebody a pin, I wouldn't have to tell a lot of people where this is because they've been here already. If someone comes from Joburg and I say, I'm here by the loft, they're going to be like, huh? I say, uh, remember that place I brought you to in Wait? Like, oh, yeah, because at, at some point, somebody has come to see me in this venue already. 
you know, whether they're from out of town or whether they're in town. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're very fortunate. Our story carries a lot of these kinds of moments where it's like um, it all comes back to a symbolic, you know, um, time or it's always trying to um, fill the circle. You know, sometimes we have gaps in our story and by bringing it back here, it's almost like, nah, nah, you guys have to finish this thing. You started it, so you need to finish it. Congratulations on, like, formally reclaiming this place. Hey, my man, it feels good. It feels, yeah, like a reclaimed land moment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and you grew up not far from here, right? Mm, yeah, no, of course. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't grow up with um, a lot, very uh, humble beginnings. My mother always made sure I went to good schools, and that's about all we could bank on, you know, which was fine. It's not like I was complaining about anything. Yeah, um, like I said, very humble beginnings and I had a lot of friends that lived in this area and because I didn't have a car or, or, or let's say we didn't grow up with a, a vehicle, I wasn't mobile, so I was always on foot and in Cape Town we called that the scuttle. I was always on the scuttle, you know, I was always on foot, so that's day and night, that's late at night, that's early in the morning, you know, and I've walked past this building many a times in my life before I was rapping, I'm talking about in my teen years. And, um, you know, a lot of my friends from those years will tell you straight, like, I was probably one of the craziest motherfuckers on foot. <laughs> on foot, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, taxis and that shit, but sometimes I would even save the taxi fare so that I still have money on me. Because sometimes you come into a friend's house and you've got nothing to, you got nothing to put by, to club by for anything, no food, no weed, no, no going out, no party, no nothing. So at that time, I'm talking about you know, 07, 06, 08, that's me in high school. So for me, I would always find ways to be economic, even as far as down to the transport. Mm -hmm. If I know a taxi costs 7 rand, I know that's 14 rand here and back. I can save that 14 rand and buy me a fucking chipperl with the money. You know what I mean? Like, there's obviously teenage thoughts, but this is how far I would take it as, as for me not trying to spend my money because I know that we don't have it in abundance. Yeah, like most of the southern suburbs of Cape Town, I've, I've frequented, I've lived, I've ran, I've walked, I've gotten lifts. Yeah, this is basically my stomping ground. Weinberg is, is an interesting suburb in the, Very in, much in the so. southern suburbs. Very much Because you have two Weinbergs, right? You have two versions of it, bro. The upper wide Weinberg, side yeah, and, and lower wine, and, and the lower wine. And they even and gave lower Weinberg a different name. Yeah, yeah. And separated by a train by, line by train and a main road. Yeah, same like Woodstock. Same like Woodstock. Woodstock, you get upper Woodstock, you get upper um, campus. Yeah. You know, for for UWC and all that. If you look at all the areas that's below that train line, if you look at how they are maintained, even as far as a place like Steenburg and the retreat, the lower half of Steenburg is one of you know it's one of the most dangerous areas here. But the upper half, they got a golf estate. You know, so the train lines and highways play a very significant role in Cape Town as a divider, as a barrier, you know, and in other parts of the world also that you may, that you may see. But growing up in school as a mm. teenager, mm. was this division, this very stark division, yeah. um, how did you experience it? Yeah, I, I knew that um, there was a difference. Because, uh, uh, like I said, my mother always tried to send me to good schools. So the kids in my area went to the schools in the area. Like right there by us. So the schools are maybe five minutes away. My school was maybe like 15 to 20 minutes away on foot. Because like I said, I scuttled. We didn't have no transport. So I walked to and from school. So that was also another journey on its own. Because you must understand, I'm leaving a school like Weinberg Boys to walk to Witteboom. Weinberg Boys is close to Maynard Moor. 
um, Vitebume is basically at the bottom of Weinberg, it's at the foot of the hill. So to take that walk, I'd have to walk through the main road, I'd have to walk through the taxi rank, I'd walk through or past the train station. So when you see all these, um, I can say, divisions with different people just based on what part of the taxi rank you're on, there's one part of the taxi rank that's just the black locations, Kuguletu, Nyanga, Crossroads, Kayalicha and Masipumlele, you know, even as far as where, where your outbase side is, you know, with Nelson Mandela Park, you find that side of the taxi rank and you also see black people. And then you go on the other side of the taxi rank with the, uh, uh, um, with the mosques, and then you also see colored people queuing up for the, uh, for the taxis. That's your Grossi Park, Mitchell's Plain, Parkwood, mm. you know, all those kinds of areas that you will find. And you subconsciously know that there's a, there's a clear line between the two, you know, and I was fortunate to recognize that. I suppose other people, maybe they didn't grow up in an area that had that kind of transit or that had that kind of um, facilities, they might not have taken note of that. But because I had to walk through it literally every day and try not to get robbed or whatever on the way home, I would always notice that, okay, some of my friends that I was walking to school with, they leave me at this part of the journey because I must take a taxi to Kugs or Kailicha. Other friends of mine leave me at this part of the journey because they need to take a taxi to Mitchell's Plain or Retreat. And then after that I'm by myself because I used to walk home with the kids that take taxi. But once we get to the taxi rank we separate obviously because I'm now you know, going to hop in one of the, the, the vans and then there's me that's just going to walk by myself. You know? So for a long time you know, I, I knew that there was a, a gap between the kids I went to school with, because it was Wymuk boys, so there was white kids that I went to school with in primary school as well, you know. And I knew that there was a difference between us because I knew that they didn't speak like me, they didn't have the same experiences I did on the weekends, meaning every weekend we'd go to Oceanview, because that's where my grandmother is and that's where my mother's from, most of my family's from there. So we'd take taxi and train, first the train, then the taxi to Oceanview, you know, and then walk from the taxi rank to my grandmother's house. So. I could see the difference between the poverty where I lived and the poverty where my grandmother lived. So I knew it was worse where she stayed than where I stayed. The poverty I would see would be in the main road by the taxi rank, by the train lines and the subways. People always making houses in the subways, little, you know, um, those corrugated cribs or sleeping outside on the pavement, you know, looking for shelter anywhere they could. So that was the kind of homelessness and poverty that I saw growing up. Whereas for my granny, you didn't see people really sleeping on the street. The people that were in the house was poor. And that is part of the you know, original settlement of the Cape Flats. That is why it was a difference between that and where we stayed in Vitebuma. But yeah, like I said, it was very easy to pick up being that I went to school with white kids and black kids. So I could see the, the thin line, I could see the differences and differentiate between where it is I fit into the whole scheme of things. But I was very attentive and very observant. And is your mother from Ocean View? Correct, yeah. So how did your family end up in Weinberg? My mother, you know, is my role model in life. So I took a lot from her um, and just adopted it in my own life, in my own plan of life, uh, basically like an adaptation, so to say. So she started out very early in the modeling industry at okay. age like 19. I think she just matriculated or could it have been when she was even in matric or grade 11, standard 4. And she got scouted, you know, by an agency. And they kind of took her under their wing and she became quite successful because in those years you didn't see many colored women posing for 
you know, um, shoots and, and catalogs and covers and things like that. So she was one of the first women to stand side by side with a white person and a black person in a Woolworths catalog, you know, and that was a big deal because she was in Woolworths, in the store, you know. And um, when that happened, obviously her name started going around and she got more opportunities. She left home also, you know, against the, the wishes of my, my grandfather and her family and so on. And that afforded her to travel to town. Now, as small as that may seem for us now, we just take an Uber to town, you know, it's like a normal thing. But at that time, for a colored lady to be coming from Ocean View, to travel to Cape Town, that's about a 40 minute, it's almost an hour to get there. That's from the last station to the last station, you know. So it's, it's, uh, it's basically Fishhook to town. And it's my mother traveling with the last train, which is about past nine, you know. So she's traveling from town to Ocean View. When she gets to Ocean View, she must still take the taxi from, I mean, from Fishhook, she must still take the taxi to Ocean View, you know. So this is a resilient woman, you know, and she's doing it on her own. And because of her opportunities that she got, we ended up staying in observatory first, so she could be close to work. Um, she worked for a small company at the time um, that was starting out a clothing brand called Eka Joe. And um, that explains the, the, uh, the fashion and the style that I also got influenced by. Denim and baggy and oversized dungarees and boots and shit like that, you know, that, that came from my mother. People think that I got it from rap music. I didn't get it from rap, I got it from my mommy. But she was influenced by hip-hop and R&B and so forth. So that's how that um, uh, links up to me. And she had a friend, and this brings me to the Weinberg story and Witterboomer, an original member of the Weinberg 7. Now, I don't know if you know who the Weinberg 7 is, but Emil also helped me um, understand better about what the Weinberg 7 was actually um, about and you know, what their, their mission and aim was. But basically, it was a group of young kids who were part of the uprisings during the 80s, and um, they got caught by the police and they all went to prison. And one of those members, one of the seven, was my mother's friend, funnily enough. So he found that house for Invitable, where I shot most of my music videos, the Yati music video and a lot of the other stuff that I showed over the years. And we basically stayed in that house for like 20 years. And it's crazy because at the time we moved in there, the rent was 700 rand. Can you imagine paying 700 rand rent for anything? I don't know if I've got this, but you'll never ever have that, how you can say, financial ease ever again in life, bro. But yeah, once we settled there, we kind of like became permanent. And everything took place in that, in that radius for me. And, and funnily enough, my shop now is like 100 meters away from where I grew up. Crazy. And aside from your mom, who were your other major influences growing up? Um, I would say then after that, it's just a bunch of niggas from America, bro. <laughs> after my mother, is just rappers, black American culture. That was my uh, chalkboard, so to say, you know, my, uh, my blueprint. You know, I was studying all these characters in this, in, in this giant, you know, to me it was giant, a giant globe on, on the screen and every time it would light up with one of these songs and these music videos and I'd hear these voices, I would be immediately captivated by it, you know, and in the beginning it's your Red Man and Method Man, uh, DMX, Ja Mob Deep, Rakim, Rough Riders, you know, Eminem, Snoop, The Dog Pound, Exhibit, these are all like guys that I grew up listening to and obsessing about, you know, and like writing the lyrics down without it. I mean, it's before the internet, so I'd actually have to listen 
to what they're saying and then like transcribe it. And if you look now, it's so much simpler to be a rap fan. You know, in those years, and we're talking about early 2000 years when I was like 10 years old or whatever, 11 years old. In those years, like, it wasn't a, a, a cool thing yet. The reason why I think the message of hip-hop, especially black American hip-hop, transcended so well here to us was because the lifestyle that they were living was a mirror of what we were going through. We were just going through it in a third world country. They were going through it in the first world. So with the CIA, with, um, with the, you know, the introduction of crack into the, the black ghettos, with um, sending lighters to the war in Vietnam, in America now, all that that took place there was kind of adopted here and copied here by the South African government at the time and used to neutralize the population. And I think that's maybe why colored people don't have that belief in themselves that they can amount to much or do anything outside of what is considered the norm. And by the norm, what do I mean? I mean, go get a job, get married, have a family and try and survive. I think that's as far as their goals went at a certain point. The dreams and the goals and aspirations that we had at that time, you know, as youngsters growing up, I think I was the only person who had a dream of wanting to be a rapper out of my group of friends. I don't think there was anybody else, not to my knowledge, you know. And yeah, I mean, I had friends that played with it and we freestyled and, you know, we made little um, recordings on cassettes and shit like that. But I don't think anybody else that was in my group knew how serious about this I was, you know. So this is something as early as age six that I kind of picked up on and I never dropped it until mid-90s. Um, Fresh Prince of Ballet, I always credit as the, the start for me. Um, the theme song, very, very catchy, very much um, playful and explained the whole show. You know, that's one thing I always remember. It's, it's storytelling, you know. So now this is a story all about how. So for me, like to hear somebody explain a story and rhyme to a beat also, I was like, yo, how, how, how is this possible? Like, how, how is this person doing this? And his dress code, once again, the influence of the Fresh Prince of that air, whether it was the Jordans, his track suits that he wore, cap to the back, the little gold chain, like all those things were, were coming to me and, you know, in waves. But also at the same time, I'd be going outside and I'd see the bra lambing outside the shop wearing the same Jordans that Will Smith got on in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah. So I knew that there was a link between these two worlds, between the shit I was seeing outside and what I was watching on that tube. I just needed to figure out where do I find my place in this, you know? So for the next, you know, 15 years after that was just about me discovering. And there was moments I got off the rap bandwagon because like I said, being teased about it didn't really make me feel good, you know? And you don't want to share your dream with somebody that's going to laugh at you because that discourages you to share it with others. Yeah. You know, so for a long time, I just locked all this rap aspirations up and made sure nobody knew about it because the less people know about your dreams, the less they're able to destroy what you feel about them. You know, and I, I wasn't going to let that happen. But at the same time, I had to protect it. So I cherished it and I didn't share and let people in on this because I didn't want them to discourage me. You know, it's difficult, but... I knew it was for a good reason, and clearly it was. Yeah. I mean, this was around the same time that Profits blew up. Yeah. Uh, Black Noise was emerging. Codessa mm -hmm. was emerging. Why do you think that music didn't have such an impact on you growing up? 
Well, you know, Cape Town is a tricky place. And I feel like our arts and culture was very neglected by the, uh, you know, the powers, the system. I don't feel like the system was very encouraging of that year, especially. And I don't feel like it was developed enough. I don't feel like it grew. I don't feel like a music industry was, was nurtured here for us to turn revenue of music in the early days when CDs and cassettes were being sold. You can even take it as far back as vinyls. But I don't think that they, uh, they created a conducive industry to yeah. survive and thrive here. We had very small stores that were pushing local music and you know, selling product and, and albums that you could buy locally from artists here. So it was almost like a niche thing in Cape Town, but I think Cape Town also has that, the creativity aspect. Cape Town has that element where you come here to be pure in your creation of the arts, mm. you know. So with that purity, sometimes it's hard to turn it into financial gain. Anywhere in the world, not just here, you know. People go to New York in America to make it, or Hollywood in America to make it, you know, because that is where that culture and that, that business model thrives. Whereas here in Cape Town, I believe it's the same. You don't come here to Cape Town to become rich of music. You come here to Cape Town to be rich in culture, rich in creativity, you know, um, rich in your art and rich in your craft. So from the start, uh, Cape Town never had a chance to develop the industry. There's no industry. There's a very, very dope scene here that's always been here. Yeah. As far back as the hip-hop in Daba, you know, um, as far back as Emil with Hilda Wood, he used to come to our school, you know, in primary school he came to my school and in high school he came to my school to come teach us the six steps of being a b-boy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So you can see that that community-based um, care and, and, and consideration for hip-hop is not the same as in other places in South Africa. In Joburg, they weren't doing that. You know, in Durban, they weren't doing that, not to my knowledge. In PE, they weren't doing that. In Pretoria, they weren't doing that. In Cape Town, there's a, a collective of hip-hop artists coming to schools to try and educate like this on hip-hop. That wasn't happening anywhere else. Yeah. So you can see that here, yeah, the fundamentals of the elements were still being practiced. How to be a b-boy how to graffiti, how to be a DJ, how to be an MC. That's hip-hop. Mm. It's not rap. Rap is one of those elements. It's one of the five things you need to know how to do, but it's not the end-all and be-all, you know. Yeah. So we practice hip-hop in Cape Town, and sometimes it's very hard to sell hip-hop as a culture than it is to just sell a rapper. You know what I mean? So if you look at all those people you mentioned, all of them is from groups. It's collectives. It's not one person, bro. Yeah. Three months cut. Black noise. Odessa. Prophets of the city. Groups. Big groups. Yeah. You know, that had the elements of hip-hop covered in every, you know, in every aspect. They had a DJ. They had a b-boy. They had a graffiti writer. They had rappers, you know. And that was hip-hop. So Cape Town, I would say, the practice of hip-hop here is way bigger than the culture of just being a rapper. That came much later, like with me. <laughs> But before that, it was pure 100% hip-hop. I know guys from Joburg that said they would come to Cape Town to come earn their stripes as rappers because they said if Cape Town approves you, because Cape Town is a difficult audience to please, if Cape Town approves you, then you must be dope. And they would go back to Joburg with that almost like as a badge. Or like, yeah, I did it in Cape Town. Or yeah, I battled against Cape Town rappers. Or I was in a cypher with Cape Town Owens and I survived. You know what I mean? Because that's how... That's how lethal we were. That's how brutal we were in raps. So I, I, I think we produce some of the best talent in the country, but I don't think that we as Capetonians and as a 
hip-hop industry in Cape Town are able to necessarily market, promote and sell that talent. I think that's fascinating. I mean, cats like Betty D, Emil, mm. they refer to themselves as hip-hop practitioners. Yeah. Um, they started off b-boying, yeah. graffitiing, yeah. PJing. They did everything. M MCing came, came later. later. And it seems like, like you're right, the, the, the hip-hop culture in Cape Town was about the culture. The elements. And immersing, mm. immersing yourself in the culture. In all of it. Why do you think that changed? Because we started making money. We became rich, you know, and we wanted to sustain that lifestyle, you know. And you can't also be upset about that because at the same time things must evolve, they must grow. And if you want to keep doing it, you're going to have to make a living out of it. You can't just do everything for free and do it for the love and do it for the culture. The culture don't pay the bills. So I feel like they had to monetize that, that exact culture and those elements in order for them to survive off it if they didn't want to go work a nine-to-five and wear a suit and a tie every day. Mm. So I, I just feel like, you know, hip-hop comes from poverty, the genre. It comes from struggle. Every rapper comes from the same story, so much so that rappers that don't come from struggle still want the struggle story, so they will have people around them that have struggled, yeah. so it makes them look like they are part of the struggle in some way. So that is how hectic that element of hopelessness and... and and little resource is linked to hip-hop. Mm. It's like you have to be from the ghettos to be a rapper, yeah. you know? And that's crazy because hip-hop is the, the voice of that community. Mm. Hip-hop is the voice of the oppressed. It's the first genre of music that woke up and said, hmm, no, I don't like the way this is. I'm going to fight back. Yeah. Or, oh, I don't like the way the police treat us. Fuck the police. Or, hmm, I don't like what the government's doing. Let's burn this motherfucker down and riot. That's what hip-hop was about. Hip-hop was that genre of music. I, I read this quote of Nipsey Hussle where he says, if you don't feel like you live the life that has anything interesting to rap about, then you shouldn't become a rapper. If you didn't experience anything that's maybe traumatic or sad or dangerous or something like that, then you shouldn't be a rapper. Because your, your audience that you're rapping to are people that come from that place, that come from that energy, you know? And if you can't feed them that, they will enjoy you for a time, but there will come a time where they will need somebody to cater to that emotion, that feeling of hopelessness and struggle, and you can't do it. So, rather say nothing at all. Or if you are going to rap, don't rap about that life that you didn't actually, you know, uh, come from, or that you didn't actually experience. So, because hip-hop then, I can say, became corporatized and became mainstream, and, you know, rappers started making big money off songs, things changed and it didn't become about the DJ and the b-boy and the graffiti artist anymore. It became about the rapper, just him, because he was the one now center stage. He was the one getting booked. He was the one getting the recording deal. He was the one making the platinum albums. He was the one touring the world and getting paid. And once we saw the reward that you can get from being a rapper, I don't think anybody else wanted to dabble in the other, I can say, elements of hip-hop anymore, mm -hmm. because those weren't making as much bank as the, the main guy was. And it's kind of sad, but like I say, I understand why, because if we wanted to exist, and if we wanted to thrive, and if we wanted to support families, we would have to find a way to make money of this. I mean, it seems also that one of the reasons that groups like Profits, like Black Noise, like Kodesa, mm. remain committed to independence of 
big record labels was because they wanted to say what they needed to say. They spoke truth to power. Yeah. Um, they spoke about resistance. And got banned um, for it. And, and got banned for it. <laughs> and that's why and you didn't would, hear it. Would, would, would not be allowed to say what they needed to say if they were signed to big record labels. Mm. And I think for that reason, the sort of center of hip-hop in the country shifted mm. to Jogu. Yeah. Um, that was focused on, on corporatization of hip-hop and commercialization, materialism, etc. However, you managed to still speak truth to power mm. um, and still speak about where you're from, but become successful. Mm. How did that happen? I'm in that vein, bro. I'm in that vein. Like I said, it's the DNA of Cape Town. If you listen to Cape Town artists from 2022, you will still find some sort of militant message in their music, whether they're talking about the ghettos, whether they're talking about, you know, the, the upbringing, you know, whether they're talking about the personal experience that they had in their household. There's still some form of consciousness in Capetonian rappers. Even if they rap on trap, if they rap on Amapiano, drill, there's still some sort of consciousness, and that's because of the landscape yeah. that we live in. We come from places where we see brutality. We come from places where we see violence. So naturally, it bleeds into the music. There's no way to escape it. Cape Town rappers are never, ever going to be the most commercial, the yeah. most mainstream, friendly, and accepted artists in South Africa. Never. And that's only because their conditions are the same. If you take them out of that environment and restart the whole thing again, maybe then the content will change. But as long as they stay in Mitchell's Blair, in Elsie's, in Mannenberg, in Haderfell, in Bontivo, in Lavender Hill and Retreat and Steenberg and the list goes on. As long as they keep coming from there, our rappers, the music, the content, the message will not change. We will always have that way about us. And I think I was the first bride to come from the southern suburbs and rap about the shit I was talking about. You know, and I didn't claim nothing gangster or anything like that, but I always made mention of the fact, yo, I'm with these people. Even when I was around them and I wasn't rapping, I knew that these guys were bad influences. My mother told me not to chill with these people constantly for years of her life. I had to bump my head to finally uh, realize it was a bad idea. But in the beginning, the reason I chilled with them was because of what I was listening to and what I was watching. Mm. So I chose to befriend the bad guys. But also the bad guys took a liking to me very early as a kid. So naturally, we were inseparable. And I feel like I could articulate better than them. I could understand better than them. I could comprehend better than them. So I knew one day if I ever am lucky enough to become a rapper, I'm going to say everything that they say, but I have no platform to say it on. I'm going to vocalize all their frustrations and all their anger and all their fears. I'm going to speak about them one day if I'm lucky enough to become a rapper. Because I'll be honest with you, I never thought I was going to become a rapper. I thought it was too difficult. I thought I'm in the wrong place. I thought I'm the wrong skin color. I thought I'm all the things that would work against me. I'm even Muslim. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you know, that's like, that's red flag number one kind of a thing. You know, just my name alone. I, I, I didn't feel like I had a cool name to be a Kendrick or like a J. Cole or a Drake. You know, I didn't have a good enough name even to use my first name as my rap name. So everything confused me in the beginning. But when I turned 18 and left school, I had to roll the dice. Because I thought it's either I'm going to do this or I'm going to wonder what if for the rest of my life. 
what would have happened had I done this, you know. But um, yeah, the environment plays a big role in the fact that I never changed the message. I got people in that environment that depend on me. I got people there that support me, that show me love among the hate that's there. There's also a lot of goodness that's there. And to not tell their story would be an injustice to them. I'd be doing a disservice to them. I'd be betraying them almost, knowing that I was allowed to see this life and record some of it and take photographs of a lot of it, but I I'm not speaking on behalf of them. Yeah. I'm leaving them kind of to once again become extinct like the rest of us, you know? So it's a responsibility. It's an obligation for me. Do, do you think there's a problem with how colored people are portrayed in South Africa? I think there's a problem with how colored people were treated in South Africa <laughs> to begin with. I think that's the problem. When you watch footage of apartheid in Cape Town, who's fighting? You know what I mean? When you see old news clippings of the Casper vans shooting water cannons or the police with you know, shotguns firing into a crowd of people, who's in that crowd? What areas are those? But this goes to show the resilience. This goes to show the power. This goes to show the strength, mental strength and physical of that group of people, that race of people. And I think maybe that's why they keep getting pushed to the wayside because they are too much of a threat. They have almost every gift and talent known to man, whether it's sport, music, academics. They have very little fear because of the environment they get raised in. You know, there's kids that see dead bodies outside and Owens that get shot up and leak out pools of blood in the park in front of them. So they're not scared of much. They're very vocal and, you know, they can adapt. They can change no matter what environment you put them in. They're able to shift and, you know, be a chameleon in, in some sort of a way to survive there. So I think that's part of the reason why these people had to be stopped in some way. Because I didn't see that much drugs get pushed into the townships. Maybe it's because the township was already disenfranchised to begin with. No water, no electricity, no structures. But when it came to the colored men, sir, they didn't waste no time. Mm. They took them out of District 6, they built places far away from work and schools and transport, gave them the worst drugs that you can imagine, literally experimented them like guinea pigs, okay? And then sent them to prison where they became even worse. So I think that the colored people here are a special breed, even if you look in history, back to the colonization and slavery, the, the Malays that were brought here, the Khoi, the San, the Khrikwas, all those tribes were attacked first, were enslaved first, were brutalized first, before the black tribes were captured. Because black tribes were captured here, whereas these Malays and these Indonesians and Javanese, they get brought here. So they are enslaved twice. Once in their own land, and once when they are brought here on the ships. That's why the violence exists in our communities, because we are self-inflicting that pain that we feel on our counterparts. And it's a very, very sad story. So the cycle continues, my man. I don't know if I'll be able to change it or stop it, but I'll definitely add a new ingredient to the cycle that wasn't there before. Being a Muslim also seems to be a big part of your identity. Correct, sir. How has Islam influenced your music? I always felt like I didn't hear enough of it. I didn't see enough of it in the 
black American culture that I was so heavily influenced by. So when I'd listen to a ludicrous album, I know it's a wrong rapper to mention, but let's just make an example. <laughs> if I listen to a ludicrous album, he might have a song called, uh, you know, God bless whoever, or it'd be a line in his song, and he'd be wearing a Jesus piece. Mm. You know what I mean? And then I'd be listening to a Young Jeezy album, or whoever's album, and they'd have a reference to the Mother Mary. And then these messages were all about Christianity in music, you know? And I'd hear here and there mentions of Islam, but not much really. Tupac was one rapper that I always felt like he was Muslim. I don't know why, but I, he always struck me as a Muslim man, just because of his name also, Tupac Shakur. I was like, this, is this man Muslim? Because I had friends with the name Shakur, you know? So I was like, how oh, is this man Muslim? And his lyrics, interviews, you know, he always struck me as somebody that I felt like he would be a great Muslim. Like, I felt like I would listen to him from the mimba. You know what I mean? If he had to just have like a Friday Juma with us, I feel like Tupac would have told us some crazy shit from that stand. You know what I mean? But um, I feel like hip-hop is a canvas. It's a, it's a portrait. It's a painting. And I look at everything that's on this painting because I've been studying this painting for since I was six, so basically most of my life. And I looked at this painting very carefully and I thought, what is it missing? What's not there? What hasn't been spoken about? What hasn't been added to this collage? And one thing, like I said, I'd listened to, to a lot of music over the years and I'd never ever heard the references to Allah. Not much. If there was, it was Nas. And that's, you know, now and again. But the album is still called God's Son. You know, it's not purely a Muslim artist who's speaking about Islam and making us, the Islamic population, feel like this is a possibility and a lane that we can also use and utilize. There was no voice for a colored Muslim lady from Cape Town who want to be a rapper. And I'm sitting there looking at this and I'm scared also because I'm like, shit, if I do this, I know what comes with this. I know the backlash. I know the controversy. I know the negatives. You know, because my Oma always told me, it's haram music with a lady. You know what I mean? So that was always part of our upbringing that this music cannot really be taken further than us just listening to it in our room as a secret almost. So it comes around the time I make the song Arabian Gangster. We come from nothing. We are the ones that you forgot about. We embody the pain, the anger, the joy, the frustration of an entire generation. Not hesitating, not waiting. Young Loon Taliboom is the future, it's the present, and it's the past. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Young Loon Taliboom. Salam alaikum, lad youngster for baikum. Say pratik baisum, I'm getting smart and you stay dumb. Cape Town is my that's the time. I took that role, I assumed it thereafter, to be the Muslim rapper. And I say that because once you take that role, you can't give it back. The fuck am I going to say I'm Muslim today and then next week I'm saving a bottle of Hennessy in the club? That's not going to work out. I'm going to be once again doing an injustice. So I knew that once I assume that position, and once I plant myself in that throne, there's no going back. Once I tell people this is who I am and that's what I represent, I 
well, I can change, I suppose, but then I'm going to be seen as a cop out. I'm going to lose a lot of the authenticity that I've struggled to gain. And yeah, the song Arabian Gangster was to shed light on that whole colored story I just spoke about in the previous question, where we are brought as slaves, where the Malays bring Islam to Cape Town, where the first Quran gets rewritten here in Buka, it's currently there in, in the museum. All those factors. I knew that that story is so, so interesting and so layered. I knew that if I dig into this, if I open this box and explore these topics and subjects, I think this will help people understand who are not colored, who colored people are. Because they don't understand that me, me I never I, I identified as colored. I identified as Muslim. Because everybody Muslim was colored. So I didn't need to do the race thing. I did the religion thing. Yeah. Where I was like, I'm a colored brother. So everybody looks the same as me in mosque. And that's how I figured it out. But I didn't know, you know, up until a certain age, especially when the foreign nationals started coming in, I didn't know there's so Well, Tanzania is a Muslim uh, country. Dar es Salaam is the airport, you know. So uh, there's a lot that I had to take on and put on my shoulders and carry. But for the most part, it was something that I felt I owed to my people, to the city, and to my creator. But I know all of this is only possible because Allah wants it to happen. If He didn't want it to happen, I never, I never would have remembered Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when I was six, when all the other kids were watching Teletubbies. So I'm at least fortunate in that regard that it worked. It could have gone you know, one way or the other. But hey. Let's go back. 1652. The Dutch East Indian, Com Indian Company, or BOC, mm -hmm. sent a man named Jan van Riebeck to what was known as the Cape of Good Hope yeah. to set up a refreshment station. Instead, through incredible violence, murder, rape, and slavery, especially of your forefathers, yeah. he began colonizing the Cape. Yeah. Interestingly, your self-imposed nickname, Jan van Riebeck, is a spin-off of that man's name. Correct. Explain that. You know, upon doing my research and doing my history about this grand country of ours, when I discovered more about our dear friend uh, Jan van Riebeek, I realized that he played such a big role in the current state of what we experience as people of color, especially here in the Cape, whether it's roads named after him, whether it's statues, whether it's schools. The man's a legend. So I knew that my music is playing a, a significant role in the re-education of Cape Town's history. Because there's a whole new generation of people listening to me that wasn't listening to Reddy D and Emil and Godessa and Brasavanika, but they're listening to me. So I kind of have to echo that message that they left behind so that it doesn't get lost yeah. in the chaos, you know? So yeah, it was a conscious decision to do that and unconscious at the same time. When I said that line in Salutas, I had no idea that I would become this, uh, almost like uh, the hero for reclaiming. Yeah. 
Just got bonds locked, celebration. CA, I'm a crazy Arabian. District number six, Cape Town in Malaysian. But married to the game, in the Vata Buma Subic. Taking over the Cape like I'm Jan Van Tribit. Woo with the Boonas, feeling like. It's 22 years since uh, Profs of the City revolutionized. Cape Town culture by releasing the South African album, South African album in the country. Yeah. Um, what What would you say is the state of Cape Town hip hop right now? I would say it's quite exciting right now. I would say there are more players on the field for a change, and I would say that thanks to the internet, we kind of don't have to get signed by your mainstream, you know, global labels as we used to have to, yeah. and we can kind of push on our own. We can start up our own brands. We're able to shoot our own music videos. And we're able to perform at local gigs as well. So I would say like the industry is starting to gain traction here in Cape Town. We speak of artists like Rolin, who's already you know, made hit songs with Nasty C. Speak of someone like Cash CPT, who's you know, kind of transcended from Cape Town to Johannesburg and associated with other bigger names there. Speak of somebody like Cream, who is kind of returning to the scene once again, you know, through the Afrikaans raps. Someone like Mr. Heinz, who's starting out, but also has an authentic Capetonian story from the struggle of Lavis. Now you have, you know, with the influx of the foreign nationals that started coming, you have guys like Raf Dawn. You know, Rev Don used to be a host here. I know Rev Don for like seven, eight years. He used to be a host at Bangbo. Now we have a song out Techie where we're rapping on the, the drill. Mm. He spent a lot of his time in the UK. He was born there. But he came to live in Cape Town in Ottery and became friends with the Kong Colored Brasser. So it's easy for him to understand our culture. It's easy for him to understand our dialect. And we've been friends ever since. Mm. You know? And we only made a song in 2022. But I've known him from like 2013, you know? So him and Pretty Prince, who's also Angolan, and EJ, who's also Angolan, we are seeing the, the playing field widen. We are seeing other nationalities come in and add something to that canvas. And that's all we need. We need different voices. We need different topics of discussion. But everything must be addressed. Nothing must be left off the table. They need to make a song about xenophobia for them as Angolan men, how it feels to come here and be still treated unequal mm. by their own people as black people because they are not from the country. We need to hear songs about uh, gender-based violence from a female or teenage pregnancy from a female. Someone like Queen Pin, someone like Nashifa. So now, I like the fact that there's more names to the roster. Yeah. I like the fact the team is bigger. And this is what we wanted, evidently. As long as we all get a turn to say what's on our mind mm. and, and verbalize these, these feelings and emotions that we've been keeping in for all these years, thinking that rap is not for us and is a reserve for black America and just black people in general. It's, it's our turn now. It's our time. It's our time to speak. And we will not switch the mic off until we are done. Yeah, <laughs> so thank you for the time. It's been a you, brother. I appreciate you. This has been Voices of the City, and I'm your host, Minhaj Jina. This series was produced by Amina Deka Asma and Volume. Salam.
Valeu!